Okay. Right then, has everyone got a Bible in their hands? I'm going to roll the clock back here. I remember Westy saying that Bible is to sermon what scuba deer is to survival underwater, right? You know, you, um, you need a Bible in your hands to uh, get something out of what we're going to do this morning. Um, and I'm going to ask you just to uh, kind of uh, quieten yourself down here for a moment and just go with me on a, um, just a, a kind of a bit of a journey in your imagination. I want you just to um, uh, close your eyes and picture for a moment uh, the possibility that all the promises that God has made to us in the Bible might actually be true. And maybe that kind of sounds obvious. You know, uh, this is a church. We're here because we're confident that the promises God has made to us in the Bible are true, right? Or at least because we're interested in that possibility. But I, I wonder how often you actually let your mind go there. I wonder how often you dare to believe that it's real, that one day these hands will will touch it, that these eyes will will see it, that the Jesus that we've read about and followed for so long will actually stand before us. I wonder how often we remind ourselves that the God who rested on the seventh day and then watched the whole of his beautiful world be kind of torn apart by human stupidity, one day he will declare rest again. So just open your minds for a moment to that idea. Think with me about the possibility of truly coming home. Try to picture a moment maybe in your past where you really intensely experienced that sensation or uh, perhaps a moment that just made you long for it with all your heart. And then imagine with me that in the future there will be a day when all that longing and that uncompleted yearning is fulfilled. Imagine there really is a place where all the loose ends are tied up, where all the frayed edges are repaired. Imagine there really will be a day when you hear the voice of Jesus say to you, little girl, I say to you, get up. Imagine there'll be a day when you open your eyes and find yourself in the place where you really belong and where you'll always belong, with a reason to be and with freedom just to walk away from all the junk and the wreckage of the fall and never turn back. We've put a little uh, kind of montage of images together here to help you get there. So we'll play that and just uh, use that as a way to help you focus your thoughts.
So I can't come back from Oxford without the Lord of the Rings, right? <laughs> Brothers and sisters, this is the joy that's set before us. And it's the subject of our Bible passage this morning. The author of the book of Hebrews wants us to grasp this. He doesn't want this idea of kind of coming home to rest just to be some abstract concept that we talk to each other about and kind of repeat in some catechism class, but we never really visualize as ours in any practical way. According to the book of Hebrews, our sense of belonging in that future of uh, having the visa for it already stamped in our passport, that's a fundamental part of living the Christian life. Let me show you. Turn with, your bio, in your, with me in your Bibles now to Hebrews chapter 11. And um, we're going to read uh, the section that begins at verse 32. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 32. I'm going to read to chapter 12, verse 3. And what more shall we say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah, and about David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. There were others who were tortured, refusing to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawn in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, ill-treated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground. Yet these were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised, since God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders, and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you have not left your people alone in your world. Your spirit is with us, and you rule over us by your word. And all the way through your story, that's been your strategy with your people. You want to be present with us. You want to rule over us. And we welcome it. We need it. And so we pray that you would be present by your spirit this morning to teach us, to feed us, to equip us, to help us. Lord, look into each one of our hearts. Know uh, what our needs are. Know the things that hold us back from that hope. Um, The things which just seem so at odds with it. God, grab a hold of us, equip and encourage us, enable us uh, to keep going on this journey and to bring others with us. And we pray that your word would would give us that fuel, that strength, that power as you work among us this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So first of all, I just want to say thank you to Rod for giving me the chance to preach on this text. I missed the chance to kind of study with him week by week like it used to be in the old days. And even though just one time out of the year is not uh, so much, I'll take it. Um, uh, This passage is a favorite for me as well. I'm sure it's a favorite for many of you. Um, And it's just 
uh, really kind of you to give me the chance to sneak in here at the end of your summer series and uh, preach this concluding sermon. Um, I confess I've not had the chance to listen to all of the messages that you guys have heard, uh, which I heard great things about. Um, so forgive me, there's going to be maybe a little bit of duplication. Um, but I guess this is the conclusion, right? I, I've got the freedom to, to wrap this whole thing up for you. So um, uh, uh, you'll uh, indulge me, if you will, um, by giving me the chance to kind of set the end of the chapter here in its wider context. And hopefully you'll find that helpful. So what is Hebrews 11 about, people? It's about faith. Faith in the assurance that comes from faith. And why is that important in the book of Hebrews? Because in Hebrews, assurance about the rest that God has planned for us in the future is a central part of what it means to be a Christian in the present. Turn with me back to chapter 10, verse 19. I want to show you. This is a, maybe the kind of central section of our, uh, this book of Hebrews here. So Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. I'll just read you this little uh, nugget here that's going to kind of control where we're going. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings. That little section is kind of the, the heartbeat of what our author is trying to get done here. And in it, he summarizes, I guess, the two big ideas that have dominated the whole of Hebrews, chapters 1 through 10. And then he tells us two consequences that flow from them. So let's look at the two big ideas to start with. Number one, we have confidence to enter the most holy place. Number two, we have a great priest over the house of God. Explaining and defending those ideas is really what the whole first section of the book is about. Uh, And if they're true... Personally, I think these two ideas are the two most important truths that have ever been committed to paper. Let me try and show you why. First one, we have confidence to enter the most holy place. Well, the most holy place is what? That's the place where God dwells, isn't it, in our Bibles? And if you know your Bible well, you'll know that that's the place that you were designed to dwell to. When Ruth and I lived here in Grand Rapids, I remember... um, taking our kids down to Kalamazoo, to the Air Zoo there. Who's done that trip? That's a, yeah, yeah, it's a lot of fun. Um, they have a flying car. Still get those comments when we're in our car. Why doesn't our car fly? Um, um, they have a Lockheed Martin Blackbird. They uh, uh, have also all kinds of interesting leftovers from the Apollo Lunar Program there. Spacesuits, engines, some of the food that the astronauts took with them. But the thing that really strikes you when you look at this stuff is it's kind of out of place just sitting in a museum on the ground in Kalamazoo because it was designed to show its potential in another world, in space. And we're like that too. The Bible teaches us that we were designed to show our potential in another world. We were designed for a world that God inhabits, designed for a world where we enjoy daily intimacy and friendship with him. We don't belong any place other than that. We just don't fit. That's why we can speak and dream and create things. That's why we uh, sense the difference between what ought and what ought not to be done. That's why married couples know what it feels like to be two and one at the same time. We're not designed for the world that we live in today. Distant from God, in competition with God. we're, We're designed to be his children, living in his presence. And the author of Hebrews tells us that it's possible. We have confidence to enter the most holy place, he says. That's big. By the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain that is his body. 
Now that curtain he's talking about there is the curtain that hung in the temple in Jerusalem. I guess that was one of the major uh, kind of striking features of the city in that day. 70 feet tall from top to bottom and embroidered with an image uh, that reaches back into the uh, dimmest and most distant memories of humanity. Angels, vast and terrible, barring the way back into Eden with drawn swords. That's what would have confronted you if you'd stood in front of this thing. And on the day that Jesus died, that curtain temple, that temple curtain was torn too. So you couldn't miss the symbolism of that, could you? It wasn't the subtlest thing God ever did. Jesus' death marks the beginning of the end of our exclusion from Eden. And the author of Hebrews is telling us, you know, the relics of the Apollo program are going to go back to space. We will be with God again if we trust in Christ. But how can we know we'll be safe there? Well, that's the second big idea, isn't it? We have confidence to enter the most holy place because we also have a great priest over the house of God. I don't know whether you guys ever to kind of stop to think about churchy words like priest and what they mean. For most people in England, if I were to kind of throw that out, the image that would come to someone's mind is like some guy in a dress, like kind of muttering strange things they don't understand. But let's get this straight here. You know, in the Bible, that really has nothing to do with what a priest is about. A priest is a person who makes other people safe. And the kind of safety we're talking about here is spiritual. We may well be designed for another world, for daily intimacy with God, but we've been excluded from that for a reason. And I hope each of us knows in our own heart, I hope we know ourselves you know, well enough to understand what that reason is. Have we been thankful to God for the good gifts that he's given us, for our homes, for our lives, even just for the opportunity to draw breath in this amazing world? I know I haven't. I feel like I own the place. Like the things I enjoy every day are somehow mine by right. That I can just wake up and expect them all to switch on and serve me. Like I earned them. Or have we been sorry for the reckless mess that we make of God's creation and for the people in it that we exploit and that we disdain? God made us to steward his world and to share the blessings that he's given us in the same way that he shared them with us in the first place. But we stink at that, don't we? In Britain, we have a popular philosopher called John Gray who compares our impact on planet Earth to a disease. He's not a Christian, but I think he's spot on. If we step back beyond the curtain carrying that infection, heaven would have to defend itself against us, wouldn't it? We may belong there, but we've forfeited the right to go back. Even if the curtain is open, we need a priest to make us clean. And the priest that God has provided for us is Jesus. Before we ever got the chance to enter his space, he entered our space. Jesus stepped into the leper colony and let the leprosy fall on him. On the cross, he let it do its work in him. He let it have its full consequences in his life. Heaven defended itself against Jesus Christ. And he died. God himself died so that we wouldn't have to. And now when we walk back through the curtain, there's nothing left for heaven to resist. Not because we're sinless, but because God will not punish the same sins twice. If the curtain is open and the priest has paid our debt, we are free to enter the rest that God is remaking. We're free. And that's the gospel. If you're a visitor here this morning and maybe you've kind of grown up wondering why the church that you 
attended or some of your Christian friends kept on banging on about good news. I hope you see it. If these things are true, if this rest that God is planning to restore is real, why wouldn't you want to experience that? If these things are true, that they're the most important truths that we will ever hear. But that's just the first part of Hebrews. These are the things the author has already said. But in this pivotal, pivotal little section that I took you to in chapter 10, he also wants to, <clears throat> to draw our attention to the things that he's going to say. Two things in particular, two important consequences of this gospel message. Therefore, brothers and sisters, he says, since we have confidence, enter the most holy place, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings. <clears throat> What's the first consequence? In the light of these wonderful truths that we've just been hearing about, we can draw near to God with a sincere heart. That's going to occupy the writer of Hebrews for the rest of chapter 10. You could go study that in your own time. But the second consequence is the one that I want us to focus on this morning. In the light of these wonderful truths of the gospel, we can draw near to God with the full assurance that faith brings. And that's what Hebrews 11 is all about. So if you want to come away from this series after kind of marching through this for, through the summer here, having really grasped the author's intentions and felt like it's made its, its change, you know, it's made its impact and left its mark in your life, this is the big thing you really need to get your head around. So what is the full assurance that faith brings and why do you need it? Well, the answer to that first question seems to come in the very first verse of Hebrews 11, doesn't it? Open your Bibles again to Hebrews 11, chapter, Hebrews 11 verse 1. That verse looks like a kind of freestanding definition of faith and assurance, doesn't it? Now, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. But we've got to be a little bit careful here. You see, Hebrews 11 verse 1 makes a good bumper sticker, doesn't it? But the author of Hebrews didn't write it with that in mind. Don't think they even had bumpers back in those days, you know. Um, in his mind, this verse, and this is kind of legitimate, isn't it? If I'm writing a letter to someone, I expect, you know, not to have a sentence in the middle of it somewhere lifted out and not connected to what went before and what came afterwards. Like, I'd be really offended if someone did that. So we mustn't run into that same kind of trouble. You see, if we read this on its own, what does chapter 11, verse 1 really tell us about faith? It tells us, doesn't it, that the person who has real faith is a kind of spiritual superhero, you know, they always feel confident. They have this warm and comforting sense of certainty that everything that they've trusted in is true and that all is well with the world. But the problem with that is it's just as big a fiction as every other superhero you're ever going to meet. Just think about this with me for a minute. Logically, faith is the thing that gets the Christian life started, right? Assume we all agree. We put our faith in Christ when we begin with him. But if that's true, faith cannot be a feeling of perfect confidence, because if you had to have perfect confidence before you could begin the Christian life, you would never begin. And the same thing is true even after we get started, isn't it? I know, it hasn't, I know that's been the case for me. When I was a student, I felt almost nothing of this kind of assurance for a long, long period. I had this kind of sickening feeling in the pit of my stomach. What if what I've trusted in isn't really true? You know, what if this God, if, what if he does exist, but he won't accept me? And verses like this one here in Hebrews 11 started kind of persuading me that maybe I wasn't actually a Christian at all. I'm sure many of you have experienced that too. But is that really what the author of this book is trying to say? 
What about the little section we read back in chapter 10 just now? Did that tell me that the reality of my acceptance with God is based on how I feel? Absolutely not. It told me that the reality of my acceptance with God is based on the achievements of Jesus, period. And as chapter 11 develops, we find it carries on along that same track. Starting in verse 4, we get this famous series of character sketches from the Old Testament, which you've been working your way through. One by one, well-known figures from the Old Testament are kind of led out onto the stage to illustrate for us what uh, the full assurance that comes from faith looks like in practice. And what do we learn from them? That faith is a matter of feeling some kind of inner peace all the time about our relationship with God? Hardly. By faith, we're told Sarah, who was past childbearing age, was enabled to have children. I don't recall that involving a great deal of inner peace on her part. By faith, Abraham offered his only son Isaac as a sacrifice. Just imagine that for a moment. Inner peace? Not really. By faith, we're told, Moses chose to be ill-treated along with the people of God rather than enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Well, in that case, we actually have an account of the conversation that took place between Moses and God, and I can tell you it wasn't strong on inner peace. The distinguishing feature of all the characters in this story is not that they felt certain about God's promises, but that they acted certain whether they felt certain or not. They looked out into a future full of unresolved questions and yet they acted on the assumption that God had it under control. They didn't know what God would do or how he would do it, but they trusted that God had the answers that they lacked. That's faith. We actually just saw it this morning. That's exactly where Nate and Jana are right now. The author of this passage goes out of his way to stress this. We're told that Abraham, the great father of our faith, obeyed God even though he didn't know where he was going. How do you think he felt about that? Pretty nervous, I imagine. But how he felt isn't the point. The point is that he went. We're told that Moses regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. How do you think he felt about that? It just doesn't matter. The point is he obeyed. The thing that all the characters in this chapter were commended for in the end had nothing to do with their feelings, really. They were commended for their willingness to look forward into uncertainty and to trust in practice that God had the future in his hands, even if they couldn't see how or why. And that's the model of faith and assurance that this chapter is putting in front of us this morning. But that still doesn't answer the second question I threw out there, does it? You know, why is this vision of faith and assurance so very necessary for us? If we're reading Hebrews right here, it seems that assurance is one of the most critical consequences of the gospel in our lives. You know, something that we couldn't do without. And yet there are some people who say that this kind of faith, uh, you know, isn't really needed. You know, we're not in the, uh, the Old Testament era like the characters we're reading about here. Where are we? They had to look forward and believe in things that they couldn't see because everything that Jesus would do was part of their future. But for us, everything that Jesus has done is part of our past. So why do we even need this ability to trust in things that we can't see if the things we need to trust in are written on the pages of history? Well, let's think about this carefully now, because this, I think, is where the real meat of this last part of Hebrews 11 lies. 
You see this picture of Christian history that we have here is kind of, uh, you know, it's, it's more complicated than just Old Testament equals trusting in things that have yet to be fulfilled and New Testament equals trusting in things that have all been fulfilled and, you know, done up with a bow. There's a tension in this chapter between hopes that are realized and hopes that have yet to be realized. And it runs through the whole of our text. Come back with me to Hebrews 11 verse 33 for a minute. Did you notice the curious little detail there as I read it? By faith, Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, and Samuel conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised. That's a kind of weird little switch up, isn't it? If this is supposed to be a list of people who are all waiting for God's promises to be fulfilled. Verse 39 says no one in this chapter received what they were hoping for. But verse 33 seems like it tells us they did. And there's also a hint of the same tension just in the way this whole chapter is put together. In the first half of the chapter, all the way up to verse 31, every one of these little mini biographies has a bit of detail, doesn't it? You know, we're we're, we're let into the life of all these characters through from Abel to Rahab, and we get some kind of nuggets about what their lives were like. But did you notice that the author then shifts into summary mode? I don't have time to tell you about Gideon and Barak and Jeff Samson and Jephthah and David, he says. And it's like, really? You don't have time to tell us about David? It feels like there were probably some people earlier in the list who could have been politely abbreviated just to make space for him. <laughs> um, <laughs> but the line that the author draws there at verse 31 after Rahab isn't arbitrary. It's there for a reason. Rahab's story is a natural punctuation point in the history of the Bible. Her story marks a moment of completion in God's unfolding plan for history. And it's important that we see that if uh, we're going to get our heads around this chapter, we need to know what kind of completion that was. Do you remember what the Bible tells us about Rahab? I heard great things about the sermon that Dave uh, preached on her a couple of weeks ago. That's so cool just to hear about the young guys that are coming through teaching and serving here. I remember many of them uh, from five or seven years ago, and it's just a delight to hear that you're getting to enjoy their ministry these days. Rahab, as I'm sure you heard on that occasion, was the lady the Israelites rescued from Jericho before the walls came tumbling down. And she was an unlikely heroine, right? You know, a prostitute, a Canaanite, not exactly the kind of lady the Israelites would have had on their Christmas card list, if they'd had a Christmas card list. Um, But Rahab is the lady who believed in God despite seeming as excluded as excluded could be. And in chapter, in Joshua chapter 6, verse 23, something very, very important happens to her and her family. That text tells us that when the Israelites brought Rahab up out of Jericho, they set her at rest in a place outside the camp of Israel. And if you've been listening carefully to what I've been saying so far this morning, that word rest should catch your attention. That word rest gets used to describe uh, Rahab in Joshua 6. It's the same rare word Uh, that gets used to describe Adam and Eve's experience of rest in the Garden of Eden. So what's going on here? Well, perhaps I can use an illustration to make the point. I wonder what's the most important promise you've ever made. For me, it was the promise that I made to marry my wife, Ruth. And part of making that promise was also finding ways to demonstrate what life would look like when the promise was fulfilled. That's what we call engagement, isn't it? It isn't marriage, but it's kind of a little walking picture of marriage. Uh, it isn't the binding and irrevocable commitment of marriage, but it's a chance to show your fiancé and the world what life will look like when that commitment is binding and irrevocable. 
It's a glimpse of what real marriage will look and feel like, even though it isn't yet the real thing. Or think with me maybe about a more constitutionally weighty promise. It's promised in the laws of the United Kingdom that the throne of our country will pass to Prince William when his father dies. He will take up great privileges and great responsibilities at that moment. But do you think that will happen without any preparation? No. Since his birth, the British people have been getting to know Prince William so that when the day finally comes and uh, uh, he becomes king, we will have confidence in him. As an adult, he's served in the Air Force, he chairs various charities, he speaks at various political functions. None of that is really being king, but it's directional, isn't it? It's given him and us a chance to see what his kingship will look like when it comes. Well, that's what God has done with the biggest promise that was ever made. When God promised to Abraham that he was planning to redeem the world, to bring the outsiders back in, to pay their debts on his own dime, to restore the rest that human beings enjoyed with him at the very start, he didn't leave us with no indication of what that would look like. Though he wove the anticipation of it into Israel's history. And that's what our Old Testaments really are. So what's special about Rahab? Well, think about it. In Eden, God made a people for himself. He made Adam and Eve to be his treasured possession. That's what we were designed to be. By the time we reach Rahab's story, he's done it again. Millions of people, the people of Israel, and any other nation that wants to join them have become the people of God. In Eden, God blessed his people with his presence and his rule. And by the time we reach Rahab's story, he's done it again. The God of the universe is living among the Israelites in a tent. He's given them his law to live by. In Eden, God gave his people a special place to live in, a beautiful place, a secure place. And by the time we reach Rahab's story, that's happened too. After 400 years in Egypt, the Israelites have entered the promised land and God has set them at rest. Now, this isn't the real thing, is it? This isn't really kind of Eden restored like on a cosmic canvas. This isn't rest and restoration for the whole world. And it only lasts a generation, but it's directional. It shows us the kind of God we're dealing with here, that he hasn't forgotten his promises, that he really means business. So do you see what's happening now in our Hebrews text? Do you see why we have this tension between hopes that are fulfilled and hopes that aren't yet fulfilled? As we work our way through the Old Testament story, God puts these glimpses of what the world will look like when everything is remade in front of us to teach us to yearn for it. They're not the better country that Abraham was longing for in and of themselves, but they give us a kind of fleeting foretaste, don't they, of the, uh, uh, the promises uh, that what they'll look like when they are actually fulfilled. They leave us waiting, longing for the actual realization of these things. And the writer of the chapter wants us to take our place in that story of waiting. Because even though Jesus has come, the final completion of everything that he achieved still stands ahead of us. Certainly the fact that Jesus came has changed things profoundly, hasn't it? When Jesus, we've seen God come riding to the rescue of his people. Not just in picture language with kind of sacrificial lambs and goats and all the symbols the ancients had to make do with. Jesus actually came to save us. His life for our lives. His death for our deaths. In Jesus, we've seen God coming to bless us with his presence. Not in a tent, but in an actual human being. In Jesus, we've seen God coming to bless us with his rule. Not from a mountaintop with thunder and lightning and all those pyrotechnics. 
but in the word of God made flesh. But though almost all the pieces of the puzzle are in place now, the story isn't finished yet. We still await the day when God will take everything that Jesus achieved and let it kind of burst out across the surface of the earth in global transformation. And it's the waiting stories then, not the victory stories of Hebrews 11, that teach us how to do it. So we have to be careful how we let this chapter shape our expectations for the present, don't we? I'm sure many of us want to come to this passage and find a kind of picture of a victorious faith that can set the pattern for our own lives. And that's how this kind of typically gets presented in the church, isn't it? There's a roll call of the heroes of faith, and you two can be like them if only you believe. But is that really what's going on here? The author of Hebrews is telling us Israel's story. And there are certainly moments in that story where God's people experience remarkable victories. In Rahab's generation, they entered the promised land. Joshua says, the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their ancestors. Not one of their enemies withstood them. The Lord gave all their enemies into their hands. Not one of the Lord's good promises to Israel failed. Every one of them was fulfilled. Under David, they reach a similar high point, don't they? Hebrews 11 verse 33 tells us that they conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised. But the purpose of those victorious moments wasn't to set a pattern for now. The purpose of those victorious moments was to anticipate and visualize what the world would look like when the new heavens and the new earth come, when Jesus returns and restores the rest that was lost in Eden. And it will only be when Jesus returns that God's people and God's world will actually receive the full fruits of that promise. So much that we want the Christian life to be this long, uninterrupted story of triumphs, and much though some churches teach that, it's just not preparing us for life in the real world. It isn't the rare high points in the Bible story that set the pattern for our experience now. It's the long years of waiting and hoping that stand between them. Those are the parts of the story that can teach us how to endure now with confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. And living with that kind of assurance will be our story too until Jesus comes back. Our text talks about believers facing jeers and floggings and even chains and imprisonment, doesn't it? It talks about being destitute, persecuted and ill-treated. We need to learn how to embrace that in our present. We don't have floggings and imprisonment in Oxford yet. But we do have Christian students being jeered in lecture theaters in public. And not so far away in countries like Syria and Egypt, everything pretty much that we have written in this chapter is a daily reality. We need to learn how to come alongside Christian brothers and sisters in places like that, don't we? We need to learn how to bless them and uphold them as they wait. Hebrews is telling us that that's what we can expect from the world. So we just need to kind of roll up our sleeves and help, you know, not... Uh, sit here kind of visualizing some sort of uh, heaven on earth which is not part of God's story. But we also need to learn how to embrace this reality in our own lives, don't we? If we get sick, if we get laid off, we lose a loved one, if we're collapsing under the pressure of work, this text is for us. Those experiences don't negate our faith. They give us an opportunity to practice our faith and to find out what faith really means. Will we put the next step forward just trusting that God will fulfill his promises in the end, even if everything inside us is screaming out to say, don't do it? Will we dare to believe in the homecoming that God is preparing for his people and walk forward trusting what we do not see? 
These stories aren't here to create some vision of a super-Christian that can only be sustained by closing our eyes to the world around us. They're here to encourage us to live and believe right here in the thick of our broken world, knowing that this is what it looks like to wait and that the waiting won't last forever. We may grieve the loss of these heroes of faith as models of the success that we really hope we will experience in our lives today. But if we'll only just get them down off the false pedestal we want to put them on, the true riches of their stories can affect us. Rahab's experience of coming home to rest may not be a model for life in the present, but it certainly tells us something about God's ability to radically transform what our lives will be like in the future. So tell me, how likely did any of the promises that we read about here seem when God first made them to Abraham? Not very. What evidence did Abraham have that God could or would do anything about the situation of human beings cast out of the world that they were made for? He had to take it on trust, right? He had to believe that God would do something that the world had never seen him do before. But that's not our situation today. Living after Rahab, we know that God is a promise-keeping God. 400 years after God spoke to Abraham, his descendants were enslaved in Egypt. No sociologist or historian worth the name would have given them a chance of surviving as a people, let alone escaping to a land of their own. But God did the impossible. God remembered what he said. God challenged and defeated the most powerful king in the ancient world just to create a picture of what his rest would look like when he reestablished it for his whole creation. And that's not all, is it? Living after David, we know that God is a promise-keeping God. 400 years after the great high point of entering the promised land, the Israelites were weakened and divided, threatened with enslavement by the Philistines. No sociologist or historian worth the name would have given them a chance of surviving, let alone establishing themselves as some kind of great kingdom. But God did the impossible. God remembered what he said. God put a king on Israel's throne, and he led his people back to him. Through David, he conquered kingdoms, he conquered people's hearts. And once again, it was all just a picture of what he would one day do when he brought that rest back to the whole of his creation. And now living after Jesus, we surely know that God is a promise-keeping God, don't we? Because now we're not just dealing with pictures anymore. In the 400 years before Jesus came, Israel was a shattered wreck of what it had once been. The nation was weak and introspective. They were repeatedly overrun by foreign powers. Many Jews didn't even think it was worth returning from their exile in Babylon. No sociologist or historian worth the name would have given them even a chance of rising to prominence again, let alone of producing a religious movement that would conquer the Roman Empire and a, you know, a teacher whose uh, uh, words would be honored and loved you know, in every country on the surface of the earth. But God did the impossible. God remembered what he said. God kept his promise. And if God can do that, why can't he also make the homecoming that we long for happen too? The story we're being told here in Hebrews 11 is the story of God repeatedly reiterating and demonstrating his commitment to do this. And now in Jesus, we see these reiterations and demonstrations giving way finally to actual reality. Our hopes for the future may seem like pie in the sky to the secular world that we live in, but if we look back into, the, into history, we see God actually keeping these kinds of promises. 
And it almost seems unfair, I'm afraid, to compare the track record of the secular alternatives, however cool they might seem in Oxford today. In the last 100 years, humans have made some pretty ambitious promises to one another about where they think history is going or where it should go. They've persuaded whole nations to follow them. But whether it was Marxism or communism or fascism, none of that looks quite so smart today, does it? And the gospel is just keeping on going. Now, however unpopular or fantastic it sounds today, history itself teaches us that God is a promise-keeping God. And if we see it written on the pages of the past, tell me why we shouldn't believe that he'll keep writing it on the pages of the future. So how should we respond? Not by trying to persuade ourselves that we already live in heaven now, but by accepting our responsibilities as people waiting for heaven in in the future Since we're surrounded then by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The joy that was set before Jesus and that motivated him even to endure the cross is set before us as well. The rest that God spoke into existence at the beginning of the Bible is the rest that he is determined to restore at the end. And he's calling us to believe, to believe that that will happen, to let that vision of the future capture our hearts and shape our decisions in the present. Not that we have to be able to see how he's going to do it, but just to trust that he will do it because he's God. This chapter of God's word wants us to join the ranks of people who have waited before us because there will come a day when together with them we will inherit what God designed us to inherit in the first place and we will love him and we will serve him there for all eternity. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, lift our eyes uh, up from uh, the trials and sorrows of this world and enable us to believe that that stuff doesn't disqualify us from what it is that you have planned, that it's not some kind of black mark on our faith that means that we don't really get it, but that that's what this world is like. And it will be like that until one day you rent the heavens and you come back and you reclaim ownership of it all. And as we look back into our history, we see that actually that's something that you have always been about, that you have always planned that, that you've been illustrating it, that you've been wooing us into it, and that there came a day when you sent your son to actually win it, and now that message is resounding around the world until the day that he returns. And we pray that you would help us then, give us courage to wait. Help us not to be people who just make success and victory the price of our allegiance. Help us, Lord God, to walk forward into uncertainty, even when it feels bad, even when we're not sure what we're doing, even when we uh, can't see how it is that you will fulfill what it's said that you will. We pray that you would help us to have faith and assurance of the kind that these great characters of the Bible had. Help us to join with them in the hope that one day we will be joined with them in the new heavens and the new earth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.